Good evening once again. Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at John 12, 37 through 43. If you'd like to turn there with me, and I, I believe also on the notes sheet, the verses are there for you. The Gospel according to John, chapter 12, verses 37 through 43. Hear now the word of the Lord. Though he had done many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for the fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear, read, Mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Spirit, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. Well, there are things in the world that seem inexplicable. Um, Deja vu is one that comes to mind. Uh, I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have had that experience before. Pretty weird. Um, I certainly can't explain that. Uh, I tried to look it up. Scientists have at least seven or eight theories as to why that happens to us. They can't explain it. So that's one thing that, you know, we just don't really know what's going on with. Stonehenge would be another example, right? That's one I'm fascinated with. We know there are these big rocks in Wiltshire, England, in this strange formation, but we don't know who put them there or why or how they pulled it off. And there are countless other things like that in the world, things that we just can't account for. Um, And in in our passage tonight, John is responding to one of those types of situations, a seemingly inexplicable situation, namely the fact that the Jews have rejected their Messiah. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John pulls back the curtain and gives us two angles as to the reason that has happened. And at the same time, he calls his audience and us to follow Christ in humiliation and suffering. So first, in verse 37, we read the verdict, the verdict of unbelief, where John says, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So here, John is synthesizing everything that he's written about so far in his gospel account, all of Jesus's miracles and preaching, his public ministry, is coming to a close, and John looks back at all of that and gives us the crowd's response. What should have been outbursts of joy that the king of God's kingdom had come to them instead was large-scale rejection. Few have accepted what Jesus said through his words and his signs. And as John tells the story, it seems like only the twelve and maybe a few others have truly believed. This situation reminds us of Deuteronomy 29, 2 through 4, and the wilderness generation. 
Those verses say this, Moses proclaimed to all Israel as follows, you have seen all that the Lord did in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, to all his servants and to his land. Your eyes have seen the great judgments, the signs and the mighty wonders. But to this very day, the Lord has not given you an understanding mind, perceptive eyes or discerning ears. So the first century Jews failure to recognize who Jesus was and what he was doing is reminiscent of the unbelief of the wilderness generation. Both groups had seen God's mighty signs and wonders through his chosen servant, Moses and Jesus, but both had failed to understand the significance of those signs. In Jesus' case, they clearly revealed his identity as the Messiah, the one who was sent to inaugurate God's kingdom, but they didn't get it. So John pronounces this verdict of unbelief on the Jewish people, and this caused quite a dilemma for the early church. They had tough questions to wrestle with. Why did the Jews, God's chosen people, reject their own Messiah? And further, if God had sent Jesus to bring them salvation, but they had rejected him, had God failed in some way? We probably can't appreciate how difficult these questions must have been for the first generation of Christians. We stand on the other side of 2,000 years of church history. Collectively, we've had a lot of time to think about this. But in the first century, it would have been hard to understand why Israel refused their own Messiah and the salvation he offered. But as we continue through this passage, as I've said, John takes two angles in providing answers to these questions in order to help his audience come to grips with this large-scale unbelief. First, he shows them from Scripture that God has not failed, and then he also digs into some of the human-level reasons why the Jews, and particularly the Jewish leaders, did not believe in Jesus. So first, let's turn to verses 38 and 41, where we find sort of the divine explanation of this unbelief. I'll read again from verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So in his explanation of the Jews' rejection of Jesus, John immediately points to scripture, first quoting from Isaiah 53, 1. And as he seeks to explain why a vast majority of Israel did not trust in Jesus, he claims that Isaiah's fourth servant song, Isaiah 52 and 53, was fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. The events John has recorded in his gospel match perfectly with what God had always intended. And notice the two questions Isaiah asks in this verse. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the answer to both of those questions is nobody. Nobody's believed. Israel heard the message, but they refused to believe. And similarly, they witnessed the powerful working of the Lord's arm, Jesus himself. But that arm had been revealed to no one. They didn't really understand what was going on. Next, as John continues to give the divine explanation of Jewish unbelief, he quotes from Isaiah 6, 10. 
God blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts in order to prevent their understanding and repentance. This makes it even clearer than the last verse in some ways. This is God's decree that it would be impossible for them to believe. Now, in terms of this idea of hardening and blinding, which are really communicating the same idea so we could use them interchangeably, there are three important questions we need to ask regarding this phenomenon. First, what is the basis of the hardening? Well, the hardening or the blinding takes place according to God's own initiative. He is sovereign in salvation. He's the one who decides. So it's not based on human action or inaction. Rather, God elects whomever he pleases. So we conclude, along with the great theologians of our tradition, that the basis of God's hardening or blinding activity is his own perfect will. Second, what is the nature of the hardening? How is it that God hardens hearts? Well, this is where our tradition splits, and there's disagreement here. But I think it's best to go with one strain of those theologians in our tradition and and deny that God hardens by any direct positive action. And let's think carefully about this. We'll put it this way. Does Scripture teach that people are able to choose God, but then that God singles out some, and he takes away that ability, he closes their minds, and they can no longer choose him? Or is it the case that people are born in sin without the moral ability to choose God, but that God graciously intervenes to open the eyes or soften the hearts of some so that they might see the truth and be saved? It's certainly the latter. So John is not saying God forces people who otherwise would have believed into unbelief. Instead, God hardens by refraining from softening. He leaves people in the hardness of their own sinful hearts. He denies them the only thing that would cure their condition, his regenerating grace. So the basis of hardening is God's own will, and the nature of it is passive in this sense. He leaves people in their sin. Finally, let's think for a moment about the purpose of hardening, specifically in this case. Why is it that God elected for his own son Israel's Messiah to be rejected. In short, the hardening of the Jews and their rejection of Jesus was part of God's plan to accomplish salvation. If they had believed in Jesus, he wouldn't have been killed. He wouldn't have been crucified. Think of Peter's words to the Jews in Acts 2, which actually also gets at both the divine and the human explanation of Jesus's death. Peter says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So, if we take away God's hardening of the Jews and their rejection of Jesus, we also have to take away the cross. Salvation isn't accomplished. So the basis is God's own will. The nature of hardening is passive, and the purpose was to accomplish salvation. So let's zoom back out now. And ask the question again, why is John quoting from these two passages in Isaiah? Well, again, he's providing answers in this confusing situation and pointing to Scripture as the ultimate explanation of why Israel has rejected Jesus. He wants us to know. John wants us to know, and he wanted his audience to know that this was always part of God's plan. This verdict, which was shocking 
to John's original audience was not shocking to God. He was always in control. He had always planned it this way, and he was working out his plan of salvation all along, a plan which defies human expectations and human logic, but nevertheless reveals his love and his wisdom and his mercy. Well, there is one verse left in this portion of our text, verse 41, which says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So in other words, Isaiah penned these prophecies that John has just quoted because he had glimpsed Jesus's glory. God allowed him to peek around the corridor of history, so to speak, and glance at Jesus' earthly ministry. And the glory he saw was contrary to every human notion of glory. Isaiah saw that God was pleased with a suffering servant, one who would be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, but also pierced for our transgressions and who would bear the sins of many. So how do these seemingly contradictory ideas of high exaltation and humiliation and suffering converge? At the cross. In a very real way, we can say that the judged, humiliated, tortured, and executed Jesus, as he was nailed to the cross, was being nailed to his throne. Through humility and suffering, he was made high and exalted in glory. This makes no sense to our natural minds. But those who by grace have been given eyes that see and softened hearts see this sight of Christ on the cross, and we welcome, even if it's a paradoxical picture to our natural minds, we welcome it because it's the scene of our salvation. But on the other hand, every unregenerate person who's left in their sinful, natural mind is unable to recognize God when they see him. They can't accept this picture of a God who suffers on the foolishness of the cross. Instead, they seek a God of their own making, according to their own image and their own false idea of glory. And this leads right into John's human explanation of unbelief in the last two verses of our passage. So let's reread verses 42 and 43 now. He says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Well, right away, verse 42 seems to contradict what John has been saying this whole time. Right? The passage started by John saying, they didn't believe. Now he's saying, well, some did believe. Um, for a lot of Liberal commentators, this is a, you know, one of those passages they point out and see, well, you know, something's up here. You know, this can't be inspired. But there's an easy way to solve this. And part of that answer is that verse 37 is just sort of a general verdict. It's not saying that every single Jewish person, every single member of those crowds rejected Jesus individually. But the whole answer to this question of reconciling verse 37 and verse 42 comes after we address another question. Was this belief, John mentions in verse 42, a genuine belief? Let's look at the evidence. Our first clue is that they were not confessing their belief. And at first, as we initially consider this, it might seem that some sort of secret belief is possible. True faith that 
goes unspoken, but is it really possible to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of your sins and never mention that to anyone? Is it possible to be wholeheartedly willing and ready to live for him, as the Catechism says, but not confess him openly? Thinking about these questions reveals the nature of the situation. These Jewish leaders' faith was not genuine. And secret belief is not possible if someone is motivated by what these Jewish leaders were motivated by. Yet John says that in some sense they believed in Jesus. So how then should we understand this if their belief didn't amount to true faith? Well, what is true faith? There's three aspects to it. One, knowledge of the facts about Christ. Two, belief that those facts are indeed true. And then three, a personal trust and relying upon Christ. Now, the best explanation then is that these Jewish leaders, they were obviously familiar with the facts about Jesus. They may have even believed that he was the Messiah, reflecting aspects one and two, but they didn't entrust themselves to him. So they were missing that third aspect, that wholehearted trust in Christ. So we can think of it this way. Uh, Some people refuse to fly, uh, like on airplanes, and every time I go to the airport, I'm tempted to become one of them. Um, These people will drive, they'll take a train, a boat, you know, whatever it takes to not get in an airplane. They know what planes do. They go up high in the sky and carry people from point A to point B. They recognize that there are real advantages to this form of travel. You know, statistically, it's the safest way to get from one place to another, and often the quickest, but for one reason or another, they decide it's just not worth it. For Pastor Danny and Chris and I and others, it's because the seats don't have enough room, the airports are too crowded, snacks aren't good enough, it's too expensive, scared of heights, whatever it is, they value their current situation of not flying too much to entrust themselves to Captain Lewis and his Southwest Boeing 737 jet craft. And John is painting a similar picture here. These almost disciples, so to speak, mentioned in verse 42, knew about Jesus' ministry, maybe even believed that he was the Messiah, but something was holding them back from entrusting themselves to him. And John tells us what that thing was also in verse 42. He says they didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They knew that if they professed public allegiance to Jesus, they might face the punishment of being banned from the synagogue. There was a decree in the Jewish community at this time that both heretics and people who associated with heretics would be punished in some way or another. This punishment could be small. It could be quite Weighty, like what's mentioned here, being banned from the synagogue, it could even be death. We know already that the Pharisees were trying to find a way they could kill Jesus. And why was this punishment of being banned from the synagogue? Why was that a big deal? Well, the synagogue was more than the center of Jewish religious life. There's been a lot of research that tells us that it was also the social and economic and political center of life as well. So if you were banned from the synagogue, you were essentially an exile in your own community. You were outcast from your people and your culture. So these high-ranking Jewish officials John is talking about, despite their belief that Jesus was the Messiah, determined that the cost of discipleship, being banned from the synagogue possibly, 
was too great of a price to pay. They were afraid to lose their places of honor. They were afraid to lose their community. And so they kept silent. They desperately held on to their earthly advantages and forsook spiritual, heavenly advantages. John digs even deeper in verse 43. Why did they hold on to their earthly advantages? Because they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They had a warped scale of values that told them that human glory was a more valuable thing than true glory, God's glory. And they acted accordingly. What a miserable choice. Man's glory is false. God's glory is true. What advantage could there be to having the respect of the Pharisees when death comes knocking at the door? Would wealth, would respect of men, would human works or earthly accomplishments benefit them in any way when they had to appear before God's judgment throne? Jesus has already answered this kind of thinking with a question. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Nothing is the answer to that question, an emphatic nothing. The spiritual blindness of unbelievers causes such a distortion of reality that they're drawn to their own false glory, their own sinfulness and distortion, rather than the true glory, the redeeming power of God in Christ. But as believers, having been regenerated and having had our spiritual eyes opened and our hearts softened, we've been made able to recognize divine glory, even the kind of glory that appears in humility and suffering. Think back to what John said of Isaiah in verse 41. He saw Jesus' glory. He saw the majestic yet humble Christ, the Christ who was holy yet despised by men. He glimpsed the Lord of the universe, hated, rejected, and killed by his own people, yet he understood that this was how God intended to display his glory to the world. God's glory in Christ is paradoxical to the human mind. We cannot understand it. Even after we come to true faith, it still bewilders us. But the difference is that we praise God for his inaccessible wisdom. His ways are higher than our ways, and that's a good thing, isn't it? Well, let's quickly review what we've seen in this passage tonight. John is providing an analysis of the divine and the human reasons why the Jews have rejected Jesus, all for the purpose of urging his audience to persevere in true faith, to not be like those who rejected the Messiah. He began by giving us the verdict. Even after all the miraculous signs and wonders Jesus had performed, they still didn't believe. And then in 38 through 41, he gave us sort of the divine perspective on that. Jesus' own people rejected him in order to fulfill God's plan. John shows us from two verses in Isaiah that God's will is the ultimate cause of unbelief. And then third, in verses 42 and 43, we saw the human perspective of why these leaders rejected Jesus. It was because... They would not confess him openly because they feared earthly consequences more than eternal consequences, and they valued false human glory more than God's true glory in Christ. So to close tonight, the question I want us to think about is what is our definition of glory? What is your definition of glory? In the last verse of our text, John tells us clearly that the Jewish officials had a wrong definition. They preferred human glory to divine glory. 
showing us that as followers of Jesus, we have to be concerned first and foremost with God and with his glory, not with what people may think about us or do to us. But this is something we all struggle with, if we're honest with ourselves. It's all too easy to fall into the sin of people-pleasing, to have our top priority be making choices that please those around us more than acting in ways that please God, our Father in heaven. It's easy to get caught up in guarding our status and our reputation. So what's the remedy to this? How do we get over our fear of man, our our wrong conception of glory? The solution is to, or at least one solution, is to foster what Luther and others have called a theology of the cross. As fallen men and women, we're born with a built-in theology of glory. As we've discussed, This theology of glory makes it to where we we can't wrap our minds around the fact that God came to earth in the form of a slave with the explicit purpose of suffering and dying the foolish death of a criminal on the cross. Even after we come to faith, our built-in theology of glory that still clings to us in so many ways, it can tempt us to think we shouldn't have to share in the sufferings of Christ. We've made the right choice right? We're following the true God. We're doing what he commands us. Why should we have to suffer? And also a theology of glory leads us to think that comfortable, happy, pleasant things that we experience in our lives are from God and the uncomfortable and painful things are not. But a theology of the cross recognizes that anyone united to Christ will be united to him even in his suffering. All we experience The Catechism teaches us the pleasant and the painful come to us from God's fatherly hand. And just as Jesus' path to glory was paved through pain and sacrifice and humiliation, the same is true of ours to one degree or another. We follow him down that road. But at the end of the road, what we come to realize is that the wisdom of the world is folly. And the foolishness of Christ crucified is sacred wisdom. So, brothers and sisters, let's not be like these Jewish leaders, unable to recognize true glory when it was right in front of their faces, instead choosing to hold on to their earthly advantages and their own twisted definitions of glory. Let's embrace God's glory revealed in Christ at the cross. As Jesus suffered rejection and persecution, so will his church, but we can be encouraged because ultimately only God's approval matters and we have that secured for us in Christ. So who cares if people mock us? Who cares if we lose the respect of our neighbors and our colleagues and our friends and even our family? Who cares if we lose everything so long as we have Christ, our savior, our mediator, our elder brother, and our friend. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help tonight. Our God and our Father, we pray that you would give us a faith to tremble at your just condemnation of the wicked. Let us not question your goodness or love or justice, but recognize that your ways are far higher than ours. We pray also that we would not look upon unbelievers with a sense of pride but rather we would realize that we are no different. We too stand justly condemned in ourselves. Only of your grace in Christ are we in right relationship with you. 
We pray that with opened eyes and softened hearts, you would help us to see and understand the glory of Christ, enthroned and highly exalted upon the cross. Help us comprehend the depths of his humiliation and condescension to redeem us, to keep the law in our place and to bear your wrath on our behalf. And we pray that our response would be a God-given, spirit-enabled humility, that we would constantly and continually point away from ourselves and boast only in the cross of Christ, that we would be concerned more with your glory and the good of our neighbors than with our own glory and our own good. Help us to follow you gratefully and without fear of man or earthly consequences. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.